PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where we make board study a little bit more enjoyable and fun. I'm joined today by Dr. Blake Briggs. Truly a pleasure. Yes, yes. And we actually have a special guest who we're going to announce here in a second. But, you know, it's a bit of a surprise and we're super excited. Super about honored. Having her on. Super honored as well. You should be. kid. Freeze <laughs> <laughs> 15 to 20 minute episode, we drop high yield board knowledge. Uh, check us out on Twitter at EM Board Bombs on Instagram at EM Board Bombs. We have an awesome website with a bunch of printed handouts that you can use during shift. You can use it to teach. Frankly, you can just use it to learn, right, Dr. Briggs? Yeah, learning is important. Learning is very important, the more you know, as we say. So let's get started with our first question. A 34-year-old male presents to the ER with chief complaint of abdominal pain. He states that he's been trying intermittent fasting and keto dieting at the same time, and he's lost about 20 pounds. He's upset because he has a fever and abdominal pain and thinks it's because he started to lose weight and make better lifestyle decisions. He asked you if he should go back to eating the Popeye chicken sandwich that he had daily because it made him feel, quote, great. He said he got really thirsty with it because they used a lot of salt, but he feels that the body needs salt. Enriched salt. Enriched salt. Yeah. Exactly. So he thinks the whole foods organic diet he's been having is the culprit. And... <laughs> That now understanding, you, you move on, and on exam, he has fever and right lower quadrant tenderness to palpation. Dr. Briggs, which of the following is true? A, rebound tenderness is uncommon in children. B, fever can be an early sign. C, appendiceal diameter greater than 4 millimeters is diagnostic. D, non-visualization of the appendix on CT virtually excludes appendicitis. Hmm. Dr. Briggs, what is it? Hmm. First of all, it's not the Popeyes, right? No, it's not the Popeyes. Okay, great. First, we introduce our guest. First, the most important thing. This is a complete honor to have you, Dr. O'Brien. Mary Claire O'Brien received her MD from Temple University School of Medicine in 1985. She completed her emergency medicine residency and fellowship training in EMS pre-hospital care at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. She is a diplomat of the American Board of Emergency Medicine and a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society. She has 35 years of experience caring for critical, ill, and injured patients. Uh, She's also been an oral examiner for the American Board of Emergency Medicine. In 2002, she joined Wake Forest School of Medicine as a public health researcher. And since then, she's given a remarkable amount of service to this university. Uh, She served as the Vice Chair of Academic Affairs for the Department of Emergency Medicine. Uh, Then she was the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and finally the Senior Associate Dean for Healthcare Education. She is currently authoring a work on team building and resiliency in the medical profession. Dr. Brian is truly an honor to have you here. It really is. And before she starts, I'd like to add my own mentor. (laughs) All right. One of my own mentors. I call her, you know, an OG and also hashtag goat. We were at a meeting. We were at a meeting one time where she was with some peers and I said, Dr. Brian, you're a goat. And she was like, what does that mean? And I then explained to her, greatest of all time. That's right. The GOAT. Hashtag GOAT. Greatest of all time. Yeah. This is what you say about Jordans, the Uh cream of builds the bars out there. Mary Claire O'Brien. Hashtag GOAT. (laughs) Mary Claire O'Brien. All right. For sure. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. We're talking about appendicitis today. And Dr. O'Brien, we want you to steer the ship on this today. We're just going to frame some things at the beginning here. And then we really want you to add your wisdom and experience. And of course, this is a board view podcast. 
Uh, we do kind of give the boar pearls here, but more importantly, we always like to add those life pearls in uh, because in real life, appendicitis, I think, is a sneaky diagnosis in a lot of patients. For sure. Um, so just to... Yes, I would like to say that if I could give five words of wisdom, they would be, it can't be appendicitis because. <laughs> and so right, right, if, we, right. if we approach this from the standpoint of it can't be appendicitis because, and then go through uh, the literature, you will, uh, not one of us has failed to be burned by starting a sentence with that word. Right, right. So yes, I'm delighted to talk about this topic. It's a common one, but it is sneaky. Perfect. Just to frame some things, and we'll dive right into this right away. We all know what appendicitis is, inflammation of the veriform appendix. It's one of the most common, if not the common cause of acute abdomen in the developed world as far as we know. It's most common in ages 10 through 30, but it can occur at any age. We need to forget what we learned in medical school for the young learners here and people that have been practicing for years that automatically just think that right lower quadrant pain is appendicitis and that's it. It's not the case. Uh, this condition can be extremely difficult to diagnose, as Dr. Ryan just said. The problem is, is that it's not so much that we can't diagnose, is that we don't want to CT every person there you go. in the emergency department. That's, that's the, the problem. Key. That's the key. That's a lot of people might be saying, oh, it's appendicitis, just CT them, but that's the problem. Yeah. So I, I want you uh, young folks here to try to imagine what the world was like before we used CAT scans and you actually had to physically examine the patient. We're about seven minutes of this. Well, I, guess I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> just saying, guys. Just saying. Seven minutes in, and I knew we were going to That's that Philly. That's that Philly emergency medicine speaking you. right there. Right. So. So 20% of patients have a perforation in less than 24 hours of initial presentation. These aren't stats you have to memorize. And 65% have perforation in about 48 hours. So that's the time aspect we have of this and how it's critical that we get this right when they right. come in. In general, right low quadrant pain with anorexia is the most common presentation. The perimbilical pain that right migrates to the right lower quadrant, that only occurs about half the time. It's not that reliable. It's classic, but it's not that reliable. And the location of the appendicle tip is also important. Dr. Brown, I'd love to have your opinion on this. The tip can be located pretty much anywhere it wants to be. Uh, it can go anterior, retrocecal, even right upper quadrant. We learn about classically pregnancy, but atypical abdominal pain is not uncommon. And so I think if you tell yourself that the patient with appendicitis is going to come in with a classic story where they lost their appetite, they had some peri-umbilical pain, now it's in the right lower quadrant, they started to vomit, they have a low-grade fever, and, it, and they will have all the physical findings with all the lovely eponyms that you learned, you will miss appendicitis. And part of the reason is what Dr. Briggs alluded to is that a certain number of appendices will be located retrocecally. And while those patients may have a positive psoas sign, they may have a positive psoas sign. They are not gonna develop peritonitis in the same way because the appendix just isn't rubbing on the peritoneum. Mm -hmm. Or they may have a pelvic appendix, or it may be located in the right middle quadrant or the right upper quadrant as it is in pregnancy. And so uh, the location of the appendix varies and you will not see the typical patient. That's a soft pitch, the typical patient. It's the ones who are atypical that you need to be looking out for. And that positioning, I can't emphasize enough because that not only trips us up, but shockingly, it also trips up radiology. And I've had a case where mm -hmm. that happened. I mean, the patient was fine, but the initial report was read as negative. Mm -hmm. But you as the clinician should also talk to your radiologist. And when I talked to the radiologist and said, hey, are you sure something else isn't going on? They said, oh, wait, it was located in a really odd place. So yes, they do have appendicitis. The other thing is, is that the human appendix can be between five and 10 centimeters long. And so, I mean, that's a long worm right there, <laughs> 10 centimeters. And so uh, it, it may be lying in an atypical location if it's right. a particularly big appendix. Right, right. Yeah, and as Dr. Zane said, you know, something that I've developed in my own practice now is that 
especially in the age of EMR now, when you're referring your studies to radiologists, I, I never ever put just abdominal pain on my indications for the test. And I think it's purposeful that you need to describe what you're actually looking for to radiologists. Yeah. I usually put a differential in, or right. if it's the worst is when the, <laughs> the worst is when the trauma patients come in and the auto-populating pan scans come up and it says trauma. And I'm like, <laughs> right. and I usually tell Very them, like, okay, this is this what's going yeah. on. This is where the pain That's is. That's a great point. Uh, you know, telling the radiologist that the patient pain is here, I'm worried about nephrothalasis, I'm worried about appendicitis, and also check their ovaries too. And the radiologist definitely, they call back, they're very appreciative of that because uh, they're not seeing the patient. Um, they don't even know what the ED looks like. Yeah. Going through Preach. going through the uh, uh. physical exam here, uh, get ready for some wide variations. The McBurney sign, you know, everybody knows, point tenderness two inches from the ASIS, straight line to the embolicus. We're not going to read all these sensitivities best fits to you. We're not just going to read numbers. I just want you to get a, just for a feel for these ranges of how the physical exam can just can be really helpful right. or not helpful at all. The sensitivity for McBurney sign is 50 to 94%, and the specificity of 75 to 85%. And then you have Rossing sign, again, that's tenderness, palpation of the left lower quadrant, which suggests possibly peritoneal irrita uh, irritation. That's even worse than McBurney's in terms of sensitivity yeah. specificity. And in this case, obviously, we're worried more about sensitivity. The specificity is kind of like very... Exactly. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah you're not going to get that yeah. at all. Yeah. But even, even then, your sensitivity being 50 94% yeah, is an horrible. extremely yeah. awful range. Right. SOAS sign, optrator sign... Uh, the optrator sign sensitivity is 8%. Remember, the optrator sign's for a pelvic appendix. It's not sure. for a regular appendix. And I, I have to believe that a lot of the disparity in the sensitivity, or the wide range of these disparities, yeah. the range of the wide disparities, anyway, the reason why the numbers are so weird <laughs> we is because um, they probably are taking all cases of appendicitis, and that may include rupture as well as unruptured appendicitis. For sure. And so we would expect more of these signs to be positive, depending on the location of the appendix, but also if, in fact, the patient had already developed peritonitis. Absolutely. Um, labs, as usual, I've discovered more and more in my career that labs don't do really much. Uh, we feel good about getting them, uh, but <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not helpful. 80% um, of patients have a leukocytosis, and that's why, as we all know, it's part of the uh, Alvarado score, which we'll talk about in a second. But leukocytosis, as we all know, again, is nonspecific. And so that's a rookie mistake, Dr. Briggs. Not that you're a rookie, but it is a rookie mistake to say it can't be appendicitis because mm -hmm. they don't have leukocytosis. Absolutely right. So 80% right. means one in five cases does not. And the height of the leukocytosis, if it's wildly high, 25,000 or something like that, should make you look for another diagnosis mm -hmm. or should make you think that perhaps the appendix has ruptured and there's an abscess. One of my favorite things to do is when I do call a surgeon about appendicitis, I'll say, is CT scan is showing signs of appendicitis? And they have a huge Y count. Or they have a Y count. <laughs> and then they're always, as soon as I say the Y count part, <laughs> they're so reassured. It, but as soon as I'm like, it's looking like early, they're like, let me see if it's really mm. appendicitis. But as soon as I'll throw in, and the, you know, there's a decent leukocytosis present, done. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, okay. <laughs> Uh, one thing we forgot to mention that in terms of signs, actually also would be one of the answer choices, which said that uh, fever is an early sign. It's not true at all. As Dr. O'Brien just said, too, same with the wildly high leukocytosis. Some of these things, you shouldn't be, you know, it's a classic anchoring or diagnostic error when you're saying, oh, well, they have a fever, too, and they have right lower quadrant pain, and they have a wildly high leukocytosis. Actually, that may not be appendicitis based Agreed. on this. Uh, the fever will probably come with a perforation later on. Dr. Ryan, why don't you shed some light on the modified Alvarado score? Can you shed some light on what your thoughts are on this? Sure. Around? So I don't use it uh, because sure. I'm a boomer and I'm a big believer in clinical gestalt. I know that really rocks your millennial world, but uh, get over it. <laughs> Could that be the intro to this podcast? Sure, so uh, the Alvarado score uh, is better at ruling people out than ruling people in. And basically, it's used to identify patients with low likelihood of appendicitis. 
And it's a number of scores, migratory right lower quadrant mm-hmm. pain, nausea or vomiting, fever over 99.5, leukocytosis, anorexia, right lower quadrant tenderness, rebound tenderness in the right lower quadrant, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a high score uh, does not mean the patient has appendicitis. A maximum score of nine and scores less than three are unlikely to have appendicitis and should be evaluated for other causes. But within the Alvarado score, I think one really big take home point, if you could choose two features that are more likely to suggest appendicitis, Uh, So, you know, joking aside about millennials and boomers, uh, the reason why we get smart is because we make mistakes and we learn from them. And those of us at my age have uh, learned a lot more than those of us at your age, opportunities for improvement. So the two best features are the onset of the pain before the vomiting. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, all of us have had a GI bug at one time or the other. We puke our guts out and then we start getting a bellyache or they may occur at the same time. But in appendicitis, uh, much more likely to have the onset of the pain before the vomiting. Huge. Yes, mm-hmm. and we'll go back to that in a moment to talk about the location of the pain because that's another uh, beginner's mistake. People don't, uh, particularly uh, younger learners, don't understand why does the pain begin in the belly button, and it's worth mentioning why that happens. Anyway, onset of pain before vomiting, mm-hmm. and then the second thing is migratory pain. Mm-hmm. And so your history for the patient with suspected appendicitis should absolutely list the relation of the pain and the vomiting in a temporal fashion, and also is there or is there not migration of the pain. And, and, and as Dr. O'Brien hinted earlier, uh, they've actually studied the Alvarado score, the modified Alvarado score, and it's been equal in performance with physician gestalt. Um, I don't personally use it either. Yeah, but. and I do. I use it mainly when I'm sending someone home, and mm-hmm. I'm That's pretty reasonable. sure it's not appendicitis. Sure. Almost That's certain reasonable. it's not, but at the same time, we'll get into why you have people do repeat belly exams and other things later. That's the old-timey uh, way. Yeah. <laughs> I use that. It's okay to say come back to the ER. But in cases where I am sending folks home and at least it pop up on my differential, um, I am, you know, listing out that Alvarado scores just to further kind of explain that. But and that's a good way to do it. That's yeah. a good example of the score sometimes, especially yeah. like Wells citing that and other things yeah. and uh, the heart pathway. The best diagnostic test is CT adamant pelvis with contrast. Um, it is uh, sensitivity and specificity are higher than ninety five percent, respectively for both. And the findings that suggest appendicitis, just to list some things, obviously an enlarged appendiceal diameter greater than six millimeters for the average person, occluded lumen, rarely, and a fecal lift is found, less than 25% of patients. It's good if you see it, though. That's Very good if you helpful. see it, absolutely. Um, wall thickening, of course, fat straining, the typical things you'd see in an inflamed uh, hollow viscous area. Yeah, so why do you care if there's a fecal lift? What does that tell you, Dr. Briggs? Well, that would, uh, that's a very good point, Dr. Brian. That would be uh, usually one of the main causes of what happens. So you have the, the as a quick pathology review, you have the initial inflammation due to obstruction from some fecal lift or some object. That's correct, obstruction. Or lymphoid hyperplasia, whatever, in yes. kids, infection, tumors. And then you have that increased intraluminal pressure there, just like in a, uh, a walled off area that causes stasis and then bacterial overgrowth, and that's when you have perforation. And so why do people have an appendix? That's really the million dollar question today, I think. Um, I would love to hear that. Do you know why? <laughs> I don't. Please. No, I do know. And so it is an important component of mammalian mucosal immune function. Uh, immune function. Oh, it's based on immune Yeah. Order, huh? So it used to, they used to it's think like the that it was just. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's more common in young people to get appendicitis there than in old people because nice. we shrivel and that. die as we get older. That's the pirate patch. Present, present pirate company, patches, right? I'm, I'm like the, the OG that we have here, Dr. Mike. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it is also, that's the original thought that it's where your little B cells and T cells hide out to give mm. you uh, lymphoid tissue and it gets obstructed. But anyway, mm. 
More importantly, and more recently, it's thought to be a reservoir for beneficial gut bacteria. Your appendix is thought to be a resupply mm. center, so that if you get a diarrheal illness or something mm. like that, all your good germs hide out in the appendix. Wow. And when all, the, when all the bad germs come in, the good germs can repopulate, which is why there's some, this is a piece of knowledge that is causing a more useful piece of knowledge to fall out your ear as I speak, mm -hmm. but uh, it is thought to resupply the gut, and people with GI illnesses who have had a uh, appendectomies tend to have a little bit harder time recovering. Huh. And they've actually studied that. Wow. You, did not, you did not want to know. I did. No, but that is... She's coming on our podcast and dropping bombs. Yeah, dropping bombs. <laughs> left <laughs> and right. You know? Bombs I'm going to use that at the next dinner party. Yes. <laughs> oh, I got another one for you. I'll save it till the end. Oh, we can't wait. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest concerns for CT and ultrasound and MRI, I guess, is non-visualization of the appendix. And that's like 10 to 20% of cases. A higher amount than I thought. This decreases the likelihood of appendicitis because you can't see it. But it, as we just said way at the beginning, one, you may not be seeing the appendix. could mm -hmm. be somewhere else. And two, it does not eliminate the appendicitis. It's probably one of the worst things to see when you spend all that time getting CT. And then you see, can't see the appendix, and you're like, oh, no. Dang it. <laughs> or, you know, in another sense, what's important here is more for that nonspecific abdominal pain yes. that you present with. And this is where a lot of clinicians you see don't do this. They don't actually read the report to see the appendix, whether or not it was visualized. Mm -hmm. So by this, I mean, you know, the nausea, vomiting comes in, you're worried about the belly pain they're having. It might be like, you know, epic, you know, more mid-abdomen pain, mm -hmm. nonspecific, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you do the CT and you don't make it clear to the radiologist, I really want to rule out appendicitis, and then you get right. this result back right. and then... Call on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You you look on there. So I think that's why it's important to mention that. Absolutely. Yeah. Sailing through ultrasound really fast. This is preferred in first line testing for children mm -hmm. and pregnancy if you can get good views. The most accurate finding for ultrasound is going to be an appendiceal diameter greater than six millimeters. Pretty similar to CT. The advantages are obvious for ultrasound. Uh, it's much lower cost. There's no radiation. No mm -hmm. contrast. Unfortunately, timing is an issue, and it really is dependent on the patient's body habitus. Certain patients are not going to try to do this on them. Sure. And operator experience, of course, newer mm -hmm. techs, younger techs. The sensitivity is 85%, specificity is 90%, so a little bit lower than CT, but it's overall a good first test for patients that meet that. And I think it's a, uh, it's been accepted now as a mainstream test. If you, this is positive, this will go to the OR in a lot of cases, especially children. Go ahead. For sure. And so what are you, Dr. Briggs, going to do for that pregnant patient who comes in? You can't do the ultrasound, mm -hmm. and you're worried about appendicitis. I feel like uh, today I've been called on a lot. Um, I did my homework. <laughs> I did my homework. My dog did not eat it, but I feel like I've just been attacked today. <laughs> yeah, providing educational opportunities. Yes, exactly. and that, that's what I've heard all through residency. <laughs> that means you had a fantastic residency. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, to answer Dr. Sain's question, you know, to take one step back just in the whole realistic view of things, there is no contraindication doing a CT when needed in pregnancy. But Dr. Sain is 100% correct. If you have the ability to do a non-radiographic study, the MRI is a good choice for this. And that's why MRI comes up often as a diagnostic test of choice in a pregnant woman where the ultrasound is not successful. I agree with that. But in the case of it, you got a, a crashing or a very unstable abdominal patient, absolutely CT scan for, sure. for a pregnant woman, 100%. For sure. And boards, we feel pretty confident MRI is what they would ask. Absolutely, for. yeah. Board questions for sure. And the stable abdominal pain patient, maybe even inpatient, you have time to get that MRI. 
uh, for that moment. And don't forget that the, the appendix is not in the right lower quadrant in the second and third trimester. Yes. It starts moving up as the uterus does, and you could expect to have right upper quadrant pain in the third trimester of pregnancy. That's sure. a great pearl, because mm-hmm. you shouldn't just think all of a sudden they're having like biliary colic. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I believe that the amount of progesterone that's running around in the average pregnant woman makes the abdominal wall a little bit more difficult to examine. And of course, the abdominal wall is much larger because of the expansion of the uterus. So it's not an easy exam, and it's uh, it's, it's a, an easy diagnosis to miss. Mm, for sure. Um, moving on to kids. What about the kids? Do it for the kids. The children have some of the same clinical features as noted above. <laughs> That was a slow laugh. I was hoping you'd laugh better than that. I was just thinking in my head, like, do it for the kids. You and the PZR, just say, do it for the kids. Do it for the kids. <laughs> Hands up, let's go. She's starting. <laughs> However, children have much different rates of appendicitis. And the clinical features, I'm just reading these off to just show you how abysmally difficult it is to diagnose appendicitis in children. Lack of migration to the right lower quadrant occurs in about half of patients. Yeah, so you're going to say to the kid, I'm sorry, when your pain started, was it in the epigastric area and did it migrate finally to the right lower quadrant? <laughs> They're going to be like, Bleh! and then they throw up on you again. Yeah. Right. They're vomiting. They always vomit. Uh, <laughs> absence of anorexia, only in 40%. Five words to remove from your vocabulary. It can't be appendicitis because I've literally seen children asking for pizza on the way to the OR with a very hot oh, yeah. appendicitis. So. And rebound tenderness is only about 50% of patients. So Mm -hmm. just horribly abysmal stats here. Let me read through quickly the different ages. And Dr. Brown, I want your perspective on this and children in general. Neonates, appendicitis is rare. Thank God. Correct. Thank God. (laughs) Correct. High mortality, as you can imagine, like 30% mortality. Do not know how I do that exam. (laughs) Vomiting, sepsis, anorexia, it's awful. Huge overlap with necrotizing and pericolitis. And that would probably be the bigger thing you need to be worried about. Again, this is where the fever comes in. This is where uh, the items we talked about earlier in terms of the high white count would come in. These children look very sick. That's so their own category. you would not fail to get a surgeon involved early if you had a neonate who was uh, febrile, had a tight belly, had a high white count, looked sick. For sure. And so the, these diagnoses will often be made in the operating yes. room. Absolutely. But our goal is to obviously make sure that surgical team is aware yeah, as stabilize. soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Children less than five, appendicitis is uncommon here, thank God again, because the right lower quadrant pain is less than 50% of patients. Uh, you have diffuse pain, fever, vomiting, refusal to ambulate, and you'll see this come up again, refusal to ambulate is big. Children five through 12, they have hopefully more classic symptoms they'll get like in adults. Uh, but in general, right lower quadrant pain is more common in five through 12. Migration of paramilical pain to the right lower quadrant is common. This is big though, and this is what um, I typically do with uh, kids with abdominal pain, is that ambulation is really important. Jumping mm-hmm. up and down on their feet is important, hopping sure. off the bed, seeing what they're doing in the room. Um, they usually, when they do appendicitis, most children will lie still with one or both hips flexed, and then the pain can be elicited if the child is asked to hop on a foot or they'll refuse to do it. That's concerning. So that's actually called the Markle sign. Not to be confused with Ooh. the Merkel sign. Right. Please. That's a, I don't know what the Merkel sign is, but that's a topic for an, another podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the Merkel sign is named after an American surgeon, George Merkel, and he uh, noticed, a, a recent fella, and he noticed that if you stood on your toe, had a child stand on their toes and drop hard to their heels, mm-hmm. that that was a uh, sign that would be sensitive for appendicitis. Very interesting. Inability to do it. And then children greater than 12 mirrors, for the most part, adult-esque findings. For those, it's difficult to diagnose appendicitis. We divide these patients into like low, moderate, high-risk groups. And Dr. Brown, I'd love for you to add your opinion in this too. But in general, the low-risk patients are your, you know, few clinical features, negative lab studies, mm-hmm. no right quadrant pain on your initial assessment and repeat assessment. They can walk, they can jump. 
you discharge them generally with generous return precautions. Yes, I think it's important to verbalize to the patients and their families what you're thinking about too. And so back in the old timey days, you would uh, either you had the luxury of keeping the patient in the emergency department for six or eight hours and uh, re-examining them over time to see if the exam evolved, mm-hmm. and then you would make your decisions. Or you could say, uh, listen, I need you to come back in 12 hours. My colleague, Dr. Briggs, will be working. I want him to examine your abdomen mm-hmm. if you're still having pain. And I'm going to put a note in the chart and explain why you're coming back. And the volume and the acuity of uh, illness was not so extreme that it you couldn't uh, do that. But when you're sending somebody out, if you're thinking that they might have appendicitis, if it's even in the back of your mind, and maybe it's early enough, the thing to say is, I don't think it's appendicitis because, and explain why. However, it may be that it's just very early in the course of your illness. And one of the things that I like to say to patients is, so remember, illness is, uh, is like watching a movie. And me looking at you today, that's a snapshot. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't look at a snapshot of an entire movie and understand the whole plot. The same thing with this movie. I don't know how this is going to play out. There's a small chance that it could be this. And here's what you look for. And then uh, make sure that they understand that you won't think that they're um, uh, stupid or uh, anything if they come back to the emergency department, rather that you encourage them to come back to the emergency department to be seen again. Absolutely. Um, the moderate risk patients, continuing on, where these are, they have a decent enough exam that warrants labs and ultrasound. Um, you're going to Often, these patients will often have leukocytosis, you'll get an ultrasound, plus or minus a surgical evaluation, and then plus or minus an admission with repeated abdominal exams. Yes, I agree. The last group is a high-risk group. I think this is, thankfully, the more straightforward patients. They have a strong exam findings, and you have concern for the most part in terms of their symptoms, symptom onset, not wanting to jump out of the bed at all, obviously not eating at all. These are the obvious in-your-face could be appendicitis, which unfortunately doesn't happen that common. In general, you're going to call surgery right away for these. Agreed. Sometimes... Depending on the age, and this is maybe more reflective of previous years when you were uh, practicing Dr. O'Brien in a while, the surgeons didn't have to. <laughs> you don't want to say in the yeah, old days. No, I'm pr- trying to be very uh, <laughs> very millennial right now uh-huh. in terms of phrasing. But it's <laughs> called like you see it. That's what the boomers yeah, do. With your experience, vast Thank experience. You. Thank you. Um, the surgeons <laughs> would often not get imaging. Uh, that's and correct. And there's the old adage, the sun never set on a... Appendix. Yes, that's correct. Now, mind Normal you, that probably meant that there were more negative appendectomies, Absolutely. but that was the price you paid because the technology did not mean we didn't have a CAT scan. Sure, sure. Not even in the hospital, let alone available 24 hours out. If we had, we weren't using it for the belly. Sure. So. Yeah, and, and of course, you, in general, it's not going to be the easy picture. If you have a slam dunk case that you think it's appendicitis, and of course, this happens, I think, more in males. Yes, uh, that's with correct. pain. I do call a surgeon and say, I don't necessarily want to get a CT scan today. This is a pretty classic picture. They're 20 years old. They have no other medical problem. They're in a male. This. Yeah. In a male. Uh, in a female, you can't really do that. But in a male, you could. And, and I've had, one, I think, one or two cases in my career thus far of a surgeon saying, I agree, I can take the OR. Yes, and it was appendicitis. Yeah. And don't forget that a CAT scan is not without cost and it's not without yes, significant radiation. Absolutely. And the patient population is young and we want to save the gonads, uh, avoid radiating if we can. It's just not sensible. Absolutely. There are multiple clinical scoring systems on pediatric appendicitis. None of them have really been validated. Uh, They are beyond the scope of today's topic. Uh, We do have a handout online, too, uh, which Dr. Brian and I have referred to mostly throughout this episode and kind of summarizing things and adding clinical pearls in. Uh, That's on our website uh, uh, on appendicitis. You can find it in the handout section. Uh, Dr. Brian, I'd love uh, for you to kind of share any more thoughts or anything about kind of general kind of overview of this and kind of anything further we haven't talked about yet. So the take-home points for this podcast would be the two best features in the clinical diagnosis of appendicitis are the onset of pain before vomiting 
and migratory pain. And if you are considering appendicitis or really in anybody with a bellyache, you should uh, document those features, whether they're positive or negative, and the presence of those two features should raise your clinical suspicion. And the second thing, take home, uh, remove these five words from your vocabulary, it can't be appendicitis because. It can't be appendicitis because the patient is hungry, they're not vomiting, they have a, a normal white count, they've got a couple of white blood cells in their urine, they don't have peritonitis yet, these types of things, they're all uh, beginner's mistakes and you need to have a very high threshold of um, suspicion for the, or a high clinical index of suspicion. You need to have a high index of suspicion for appendicitis. Beware in children because it's going to be difficult to get the history and also because uh, often those children are perforated at diagnosis. Beware in pregnancy. The incidence of appendicitis in the pregnant population of women of a given age group is probably similar to what it is in the non-pregnant woman mm -hmm. in that age group. And so it's just a harder diagnosis to mm -hmm. make. The same could probably be said for people on immune suppression or high doses of steroids chronically. Anything that's going to obscure or impair your ability to get a really good abdominal exam. And the most common reason pregnant women go to the OR is appendicitis, not, is appendicitis for non-obstetrical non reasons. Absolutely, for non-obstetrical reasons. Um, I think that's about it. Anything else, Dr. Brown? No, I have uh, one more question for you here, Dr. Briggs, oh, no. okay. since, since you're on the hot seat. Oh, boy. So which of the following animals does not have an appendix? <laughs> All right. Are you Hit ready? Me. I'm ready. Hit me. Let's okay. go. Rabbits. Okay. Great apes. Okay. Opossum. Okay. Cats. Okay. Wombats. Wombats. Yes. Mm. So, so you got cats, wombats, great apes. Rabbits and possums. Opossum, yes. Opossum, I left off the I know you say possum down here. Possum. <laughs> Opossum, yes, that is correct. Which of these does not have an appendix? Oh, gosh, they're all... I was hoping one would not be a mammal. No? I don't <laughs> think there are any non-mammals that don't have... That's what I was hoping for. No, that is correct. There yeah. are no non-mammals that have an appendix. <sighs> I was hoping it would be an easy one. Oh, boy. Um, let's go... It's probably not the great ape because they're pretty similar to us. Mm -hmm. so gonna, is it the great ape? <laughs> no. Okay, great good. apes have an appendix. I'll so, give you so, far, so far, I'm, four. so far, I'm doing good. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> then you got cats. Go for bats. it. Let's just go with. Um, let's go with the rabbit. No. Is it the cat? No. Yes, it's the cat. Ah, dang. I should. You know, I almost thought for a minute based on the possum and the rabbit's diet that they would have enough. Oh, really? I don't know if it's dietary, but opossums, wombats, got bacteria, rabbits, stuff. and great apes all have an appendix. Certain <sighs> primates do. Dogs right. and cats do not. And that is another useless piece of knowledge. Something useful just fell out your ear. Uh, but yeah, it's going to stay in there for a while. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everybody listens to this Wombats podcast. Wombats have an appendix. There you go. It's crazy. All right. That's another bomb delivered. Multiple bombs delivered. <laughs> Remember, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Ian Bombs. We're on Instagram at Ian Bombs as well. Please drop us an app review. These reviews really help us. They allow us to uh, see particular topics if you want one. And we appreciate the advice that you're, that people have been dropping on App Review, too. Dr. Brian, it really has been a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's been uh, delightful. Thank honor. you. And Dr. Brian, as we've mentioned already on multiple announcements, she's uh, graciously joined our team as a peer reviewer and an author. And, and we are just so thankful to have her uh, her immense experience and uh, consider Dr. Brian one of my mentors at work. I'm a, I'm a goat. And I'm, really <laughs> goat. <laughs> I'm going to start using it now. And, uh, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate how much she's done for You're medical school welcome. and medical education. So You're thanks so welcome. much. Appreciate it. Yeah, my All pleasure. Right. Join us next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.